Hi guys. I'm going to be honest with you from the start. Over the past two weeks, I have been running, non-stop. Three episodes of Monsters Among Us, two filmings of Paranormal Caught on Camera, and a live feed from out in the desert. That, on top of pandemic concerns in everyday life, has got me wore down. So to say that I'm burnt out would be an understatement. But I know how much of an escape this show is for so many, so I did not want to let you down. So instead of going dark, this week I've decided to post a very special Patreon episode. But before we get to that, I just want to remind everyone that they can access tons of other great content over on Patreon. I release two episodes of Monsters Among Us Beyond a month, in addition to special releases and the entire back catalog. All this can be yours for a measly $4 a month. Now most hosts are greedy and ask for five. Not me. In the words of my mentor and sensei, Dwight K. Schrute, I know my worth. And don't forget, you can cancel your subscription at any time. Now I'll be back next week with a fresh, brand new episode. And this will give me plenty of time to put something frightening together. So then finally, I present to you the third and final installment of the Season 8 finale, Monsters Among Us Beyond number 28, Hometown Legends Part 3. Monsters Among Us Beyond, number 28, Hometown Legends, part 3. A very special version for Patreon supporters only. I am of course your guide on this journey. My name is Derek Hayes. And without further ado, let's meet tonight's first guest. Hailing from the sunshine state of Florida, Stuart is our first submitter of the evening. This is his hometown legend. Hey, this is Stuart from Florida again. You were asking for hometown legend stories. Uh, unfortunately, the one that we have, I'm from a small town called Milton, Florida, outside of Pensacola. The one that's real big around our area, I've been there, but I didn't experience anything while I was there. But I figured I'd rattle off some of the stuff that a bunch of my friends had claimed that they'd seen out there. There's a cemetery that I don't remember what the actual name of the cemetery is because everybody around just just calls it Coon Hill. And uh, 
we used to go out there to, you know, it was a typical high school BS, you know, oh, I bet you won't go out and spend the night out there and stuff like that. But uh, I went out there twice and never really saw anything. You'd hear things, but it's uh, cemeteries. I chalked it up to my imagination for the most part. But uh, one of my friends, I distinctly remember him saying that he had been out there in the middle of the night about 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. and had seen a, like a white, uh, hairless, humanoid head. He said it definitely wasn't human, but whatever it was, it, you know, it looked like, uh, I imagine it would look like what people say the rake looks like. He said he saw that pop up behind a tombstone, and when he tried to shine the light on it from his flashlight, it would duck back down. I always got a kick out of his story because I thought it was funny the way he describes it. It sounds like whack-a-mole where it would pop up behind a tombstone, and then as he would try to catch it with the light, he would see it dart to another tombstone and then pop its head back up, but it was constantly moving away from him until it got to the edge of the cemetery and disappeared. Another friend said that while he was out there, he heard what sounded like two people arguing, and he said he distinctly heard the name John, and when he went towards the sound of the voices, as he got closer, they he, they stopped talking as he got close, but one of the tombstones that he kind of pinpointed the location on was a, a man named John Wilkins or John Williams or something like that, but he distinctly heard the woman call the male voice John, and when he got over there, one of the tombstones had the name John on it, which, again, John is an extremely common name, so might have actually been two people arguing, saw somebody with a flashlight coming over and took off, and it just happened to coincide. Another one of the things I do remember hearing from uh, uh, another friend was uh, hearing voices at the tree line of the cemetery, but when they would, you know, shine the light from the flashlight over, the voices would stop, and then any time they would turn around and turn to look around again, the voices would start talking again. That was generally the most of the stories you would hear were people talking about hearing voices out there. But the weirdest one I ever heard, and I don't know, again, how true this is. I wasn't there to experience it, but my best friend growing up said that he had been out there and had seen a woman walk from somewhere out of his periphery towards one of the graves and lie down on the grave and kind of sink into the ground, I, I would assume towards the coffin. And he said he saw that and started hearing crying, like a, like a woman crying, and he took off. And uh, I asked him how far away it was. He said it was, oh, the woman was maybe 30, 40 feet away. You know, the tombstones are pretty close together in the cemeteries. He said it was probably 10 tombstones to hers, to his right. So it was extremely close. He got a really good look at her as a woman. Looked like she was, you know, dressed in a, a nice dress like what you would be buried in. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has called in with any more stories from this area, but I do know that I have heard a couple other stories uh, on the show from people in my area. In fact, I called back in to respond to one about the lights over the Gulf, uh, over the uh, over the Gulf that you could see from uh, West Pensacola. And uh, I called in to tell them, you know, that I thought it was probably the helicopters, the SAR training for the Navy. 
So I know there's other people that listen to your show that are in the area, so I want to ask and see if anybody else has any more stories specifically about this cemetery. But, uh, again, keep up the good work. I love listening to the show. I drive midnights over the road. I'm a team driver, so your show makes it a lot easier to make it through the night. All right, keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank you, Stuart. This place almost sounds like a window area. I've been talking a lot about these strange places, due in part to our upcoming documentary about a little-known window area in Southern California called Anza Borrego State Park. But some of you may be surprised to know that famed Mothman Prophecies author John Keel actually coined that term in reference to all the strange goings-on in and around Point Pleasant, West Virginia. So, Stuart, perhaps your Hamlet, too, has a thinner veil than most. If that's the case, I suggest you keep your eyes peeled for anything else out of the ordinary. Thanks again for sharing. Now, our next tale of the evening has been told before, but John in Rhode Island has some additional details that he would like to share. Hey, Derek, what's up? It's your buddy John from the Ocean State submitting a story for your local legends segment. This is actually the second time I'm submitting this story as the first one came out about disjointed, so I apologize for any editing or extra editing you have to do. So, I am currently at the Chestnut Hill Baptist Church Cemetery, parked right next to the grave of Mercy Brown. It is 5.04 p.m., and it is completely dark, and I decided to share with you our local legend here in Rhode Island, which is vampire folklore. Rhode Island is, of course, second only to Eastern Europe in vampire folklore. Now, most people know the story of Mercy Brown. I'm going to tell it from a local's perspective. There are also several others, um, Sarah Tillinghast, Nellie Vaughan. The stories are all similar, so I'm just going to tell one so I don't take up 20 minutes. But as it goes, uh, Mercy died January 17, 1894. And she was the first or one of the first to die of consumption or what would become a very, um, really bad outbreak of consumption here in Exeter. Now, what would happen is the consumption apparently was very contagious back then. And uh, it's now what we call tuberculosis, I believe. Back then they called it consumption because I think it appeared as though the disease ate you from the inside out. People looked very gaunt and pale and almost corpse-like before they passed on. But as the disease spread, so did this tale of, you know, a very waif-like woman, a pale woman in white burial linens, barefoot, that these sick people would be seeing in their backyards. They would wake up at night, they were sick, and they would see this ghostly apparition of a young girl. And this followed the disease, and some people even woke up and claimed to see this girl or apparition in their house, uh, standing over them. Uh, Now, I'm not sure where the word vampire enters the story, but eventually Mercy's brother gets consumption, and he wakes up one night, and he sees the figure standing over him, and he's able to identify it as his sister. And I think this is where the word vampire comes in, because at some point, uh, and I don't know if the Browns were Baptists, despite this being a Baptist church. Back then, they could have been anything. But we'll go on the assumption that they were Baptists. So someone came in, a religious figure, and said, 
this is a case of vampirism. Here's what you have to do. What they ultimately had to do was get her body, you know, basically take her heart, burn it, mix the ashes, and give it to the brother as a cocktail. And that would cure the brother. Well, long story short, they do this. Brother dies anyway. <laughs> so now here's the whole, I don't know, spin, if you will. Mercy died in January, okay? In January here in Rhode Island, the ground is frozen. So she wasn't buried. She was actually stored in a little, um, I don't know, it's kind of like an above-ground crypt. Uh, they didn't actually put her in the ground until the, probably April. So this whole time, she was sitting above ground, freezing. So she was basically frozen. So when they eventually cut her open, it's not surprising to me that she was full of blood. You know, if they had cut her open in spring, she would have been defrosting and probably full of blood. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm just kind of making rational assumptions here. But, you know, so I don't know if Mercy Brown was the first vampire of Rhode Island. I don't necessarily think she was. I think this is a pretty logical explanation. You know, she wasn't buried. <laughs> she froze. Uh, her corpse froze. When it thawed out, it was full of blood, and it looked like she had been running around. The other two vampires, similar stories, although I will add one, you know, little thing here about Nellie Vaughn. Uh, sometime in the late 90s, you know, and now, now all these sites are, are, are still, you can come visit all these grave sites, Tillinghast, Mercy Brown, and uh, Nellie Vaughn is the one that's hard to find because her uh, headstone was um, subject to quite a bit of vandalism in the, in the late 90s, mid-90s. And I was in high school at the time, and I actually knew one of the kids who stole it. Uh, and eventually the cops found it, and they did what they did. Gave him a slap on the wrist, put him in juvie, I don't know. He was kind of a punk. <laughs> but what's interesting about this is he was a magnet for tragedy after he stole that headstone. I mean, this kid got in no less than four serious accidents. One of them left him in a coma for a sizable or a lengthy amount of time. Yeah, I think he had some permanent brain damage after after the coma. He did, you know, be, you know, substance abuse. You know, he did become an addict. Uh, I don't like to use that word. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he had some substance use problems after that. And he even fell off a cliff. Now, this is Rhode Island. This, we don't have cliffs. This, this isn't the Rockies. There's literally one rock here that we call Wickerbox at Rock. And it's, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 feet tall, and you climb it to get a good view. And he managed to fall off that somehow. I, it, it boggles my mind. So, you know, in the one sense, there's pretty rational explanation as to, you know, the, the lore behind Mercy Brown, and, and maybe she, you know, was just uh, frozen, and when they cut her open, her blood was flowing because it, she had defrosted. Or maybe she was a vampire, I don't know. But, you know, when you combine it with Sarah Tillinghast and Nellie Vaughn and her, you know, sites being cursed and apparently, you know, no grass grows in any of the, you know, places where they're buried. And I've seen that personally. I went to Sarah Tillinghast's graves, which is at the Plain Meeting House, Baptist Church Cemetery, and it was in the middle of summer and there was grass everywhere except in front of her headstone. It was a perfect square of brown grass. And this is even freakier, a big black rat snake just slithered right past me and went right under her headstone. Freaked me right the hell out. So I don't know. Are there vampires in Rhode Island? Were there? You know, who knows? But it's, it's a great story. It's, it's my hometown legend. 
you know, I grew up with it. And in fact, I live within 10 miles of all three of those graves. So keep up the good work. You know, I love your show. I've been listening to you forever, my friend. You're an inspiration. You're one of the reasons I tried to start my own podcast. And, um, you know, hopefully that will get going at some point. <laughs> anyway, take care. Uh, happy holidays. And uh, all right, brother. Peace. Thank you, John. It's great to hear from you again. As many of you know, I grew up a huge horror buff, and vampires were among my favorite of Hollywood's creations. The Lost Boys, Fright Night, and of course, the countless Dracula films. So naturally, I wanted to tell you guys another infamous vampire hometown legend. But outside of Mercy Brown, the Highgate Vampire in the UK, and of course, the Mana Nagal, which we covered on Hometown Legends Part 1. Now, outside of those, I couldn't think of another story. Luckily, Josh over at the Facebook group introduced me to a story I'd never heard of before. The Hollywood Cemetery Vampire from Virginia. So our ghostly story begins here on October 2nd, 1925, just about 100 feet inside this sealed off tunnel. It's one of Richmond's greatest and most mysterious legends. This 4,000 foot long tunnel had been a nightmare since the deadly construction began in 1871. 88 years ago, a work crew was widening the shaky tunnel. A brick fell from the arched ceiling, slamming into one of the 10 railroad flat cars. Watch out, she's a coming in, shouted the burly 28 year old fireman, Benjamin Mosby. The tunnel collapsed, entombing engineer Tom Mason at the throttle. At least one and probably two or three of the 200 or so laborers inside were also buried alive. The tough guy fireman, Ben Mosby, horribly burned, his face and teeth smashed, managed to crawl under the flat cars and run for it. Now after the collapse, the men had to run here to the eastern portal, nearly a mile away. Can you imagine stumbling over railroad ties and each other? Reportedly, the men had their knives out, cutting anything that got in their way. Now, witnesses said this man-like creature, nearly naked, come running out with flesh hanging off its body, like pointed teeth and burning eyes. According to legend, the horrifying creature was chased down towards the James River, all the way here to Hollywood Cemetery, where he disappeared inside of this mausoleum, supposedly home to a vampire. But news reports at the time make no mention of the ghoulish flight to Hollywood Cemetery. The brave Mosby was taken here to the old Grace Hospital where he died from his ghastly injuries. Rescuers dug straight down through Jefferson Park to recover the body of the white engineer, Tom Mason. The reverse lever rammed against his suffocated chest. The laborers, engine 231 and the 10 flat cars remain buried inside this tunnel of misery. So that's just one of the stories surrounding the strange goings-on here at this mausoleum. That clip comes courtesy of WTVR, CBS 6 News, out of Richmond. And coincidentally, for those that don't know, one of my hobbies and previous professions was creating period-accurate vampire hunting kits. I've been on hiatus the past year or so due to the success of Monsters Among Us. Now our next narrative nudges us into the ghostly arena. Or should I say, theater. This is Addie's Call.
Hi, Derek. Uh, this is Addie. I've called in a couple times before, but I'm on season six right now on the show, and I'm calling about if you're still doing, like, a Hometown Legends episode. I have a short one for you. So my high school um, that I went to is fairly new. It was built about probably 10 years ago, maybe. Um, like, I was one of the newer classes in the in the new building. Well, I was in the theater room a lot because I took classes there and I where I hung out all the time. Well, my theater teacher told us that there was, like, a legend surrounding the building, even though it was newly built. She said that when they were building it, uh, one of the builders got caught underneath the stage, and he died, and his leg got cut off when he died, and he was crushed underneath the stage. And so the legend is that there's a ghost that haunts the theater stage and like the backstage in the room and so our teacher would always tell us about this like oh if you listen at night or if you're here alone sometimes you'll see the ghost or you hear the ghost and you know it was always a fun tale tale around um, Halloween Um, I personally have not really had any encounters with the ghost but there are always stories of you know when the actors getting ready for a show they'd be backstage and they'd hear like knocks or movement or you know things not being where they're supposed to be and then sometimes our theater teacher would tell us she would come in she'd be the only one in the room uh all the lights are off and then she would walk in and lights would flick on and they weren't automatic by the way like the lights were not automatic and just to point that out there and so the lights would flick on when she would walk in or they would flick off when she was backstage and so she always told us that was the ghost uh he never harmed us or anything you know he's kind of a good luck charm like yeah our theater department has a ghost you know why not um that's my tale for you i love the show i'm still catching up on it you're doing a great job look forward to hearing more okay bye thank you addy It seems like theater ghosts are some of the most popular of specters. I've heard countless stories over the years, and I know I've mentioned it before, but both of the theaters at my college were rumored to be haunted as well. So I don't know if it's because performers are a superstitious group, or if the energy created by visiting audiences somehow lingers on, but something strange certainly is going on backstage. Thanks again, Addie, for sharing. Well, our next tale of the evening comes to us from an anonymous source, and ironically enough, also tells of a strange theater presence. The following was submitted anonymously. Hi, Derek. Um, I'm calling with the Hometown Legend. Um, I actually just listened to the most recent Hometown Legends for Season 7, and this is from my hometown of Moses Lake. Um, allegedly... At the high school there, there is a lady in white who's been seen in the high school uh, theater. Apparently, she's been seen up on the rafters. In fact, it's, it's even like in those really independent books you like you know, find in the library and whatnot. I don't know anybody who's seen her, and I honestly do not know why it would be haunted, because as far as I know, nothing bad has happened there. The only thing I can think of is in the 90s at our middle school so there was a shooting and the only thing I can possibly think of to 
give rise to this particular hometown legend is maybe people don't they feel like there should be a ghost at a school, but they don't want to put it at the school where this tragedy happens. So they kind of have put it to uh, an innocent school. And as a quick little tangent, I have a friend whose dad was a uh, janitor at the school where the shooting occurred, and he told me it was there late one night, and he heard screaming, distant screaming. So I hope you can use this. Nice little kind of quirky legend, I suppose, of the show. Thank you, caller. See, I told you, theaters have all the ghosts. Thank you again, caller, for sending that one in as well. And also, this may be a bit on the dark side, but I've been wondering if schools that have experienced shootings have also since reported any sort of strange ghostly activity. I wouldn't be at all surprised if that sort of thing began to rise in popularity over the next decade or so, unfortunately. Well, on to a much brighter note. How about a story about a murder on a bridge? Well, the following was submitted anonymously from the state of Vermont. So my hometown is near Stowe, Vermont, and we have a legend about a place called Emily's Bridge. This is one of those urban legends that if you grew up in this area, you start hearing it by the time you're in middle school and in high school and college. Everyone is, you know, daring you to go out there at midnight on Friday the 13th or go out on Halloween. It's that kind of a place. Um, it appears in a lot of the local folklore books. And for a supposed haunting site, it's pretty well documented, especially considering it's in the middle of nowhere. There's a lot of photos, some video, tons of reports of people going out and seeing flashing lights or female-shaped apparitions on the bridge. A lot of talk of cars being scratched up or dented or banged on like something is beating on them. Talk about hearing voices and crying and laughter. All of what you'd sort of expect from a haunting. And this is all based on the story of Emily. Um, there's about six or seven different versions, but the most common one is that Emily was a young woman at the turn of the century who went out there to meet her boyfriend one night and she went to tell him that she was pregnant and he went to tell her that he was breaking up with her and marrying someone else. Obviously, they disagreed. They had a fight. And the story ends up with Emily uh, being pitched off the bridge. Unfortunately for Emily, she does end up murdered in every version of the story um, and usually in a, in a pretty gruesome fashion. So part of the legend is that Emily hates men, that she... Um, you know, will claw up the sides of cars or carriages that were being driven by men alone at night. Or if a man crossed the bridge alone, that he would find himself scratched up and beaten as though somebody had, you know, kind of attacked him on the bridge. Or they'd report coming off the bridge with handprints as if they'd been slapped really hard. So a lot of the legend sort of paints Emily out to be very vicious, very vindictive, very vengeful. It's supposed to be a really creepy, scary place. So 4th of July, 2019, my dad and I have gone out hiking. It is the middle of the morning. It's not even quite noon. We'd come down off the trail a lot earlier than we thought. We were out near the Stowe Pinnacle, which is a couple of miles from the location of Emily's Bridge, a little place called Gold Brook. So we decided that with nothing else to do for the day, we're going to go find it. And even for Vermont, the road that it's on, Goldbrook Road, is a twisty, curvy, sharp, steep little road. It's very unpleasant. 
you come down off of this hairpin curve, there's a very small parking space that would fit maybe two cars, then immediately there's the ledge and the bridge over it, and then about 100 feet beyond that, there's the main road back into Stowe Village. Super small area. So we pull in, you know, park the truck. It's 85, 86 degrees, bright and sunny. The birds are singing. The bridge is brightly lit. There's a little plaque explaining the bridge and history and the story of Emily and sort of how the legend has grown. And it's overall kind of a nice area. There's a little path that runs down to the brook. And, you know, so we walked around a little bit, took a look around. But for someone who went there kind of expecting to see the haunted bridge, it was a little bit disappointing. So we were probably only there about 10 or 15 minutes just kind of looking around and enjoying it. And I finally said, okay, obviously there's nothing here. It's just a story. And at that point, we get back in the truck. So we have gotten into the truck. Like I said, it was 85, 86. We've been parked in the bright sun. The inside of the truck is wicked hot. We haven't even had a chance to reach for the AC yet. We're starting to pull over the bridge. And I kind of joked to my dad and I said, well, I guess if Emily was here, she didn't want to come out today. (laughs) And almost immediately, I felt as cold as if somebody had hit me in the chest with a snowball. And it was like it radiated all the way down my arms and my legs. And I was just ice cold. I felt like somebody had taken a finger and dragged it down the back of my neck. I don't think I have ever been so shocked in my entire life. I am pretty sure I actually screamed. And I heard a sound like a woman laughing just hysterical cracking up laughter I swear to you there was some woman sitting there laughing at me except it was only my dad and I in the truck this all happened really fast it was maybe five or six seconds my dad's looking over at me and at first he was looking at me you know are you okay and then he sees the look on my face and he starts laughing and he goes I'd say you look like you've just seen a ghost but and I said, I, I, ah, ah, and I'm, you know, sitting there trying to get words out. Nothing is coming out. I finally managed to get my breath back. And I said, I, I think I did. I think there was something on that bridge. And I described to him what happened. And he's shaking his head. And he said, I'm telling you, you doubted the story. And I'm just sitting there going, this is impossible. This is impossible. Nothing just happened. Finally managed to recover myself a couple minutes later. And I don't know who it was on that bridge. I don't know who Emily was in real life, but I have to say, I think that whoever she is, she has a pretty fabulous sense of humor because she got me good and I will never doubt her again. Thank you, caller. More personal experiences at these legendary locations. I don't get it. I've visited countless sites like these over the years and I haven't experienced a single thing with the exception of wrong turns and Board cops. But from the sounds of things, perhaps I should have started looking in the state of Vermont. Thank you again, caller, for sharing that story. And that brings us to our next entry of the evening. The following was submitted to us, also anonymously, but this time from the country of Canada. Hey Derek, I'm calling from Canada for the Hometowns Legends episode. It's actually from my dad's hometown. He's from a small village in Greece, from the Arcadia region near Tripoli. There's a myth in his hometown and also 
the surrounding area that, while it's not really a myth, it is based on historic facts. Back in antiquity, 4th century BC, I believe, there was a great general called Epaminondas, and he was a general from Thebes, and he was marching through the area of Mandinia, which is the present-day area where my dad's from. And um, he was attacked on the battleground or a lot passing through by Barta and Athens at the time. And he had a great battle in that moment and he was struck in the chest by a spear. But he, uh, Thebes and his army ended up winning the battle. So as he lay dying, he asked like, who, who won? And his army told him, we won, we won against them. And he said, now I can die. And he died. And in Greek fashion at the time, he was buried on the battlefield. And this is apparently all fact. Now, the legend part is that he was buried with a golden chariot. And this idea is still well known in the area to this day, that um, people in the area believe that the chariot is still somewhere around there. Maybe my dad thinks that the battle took place near a property that we still own. And there's still, every so often, new archaeological finds that happen every time people um, excavate the properties and a lot I know that my dad and my grandfather were actually trying to dig underneath our house there, which is at least 200 years old. We actually uncovered a tomb and more graves, so we had to like patch it back up out of respect. But I don't think it was anything that was ancient. I think it was more so a few hundred years old because they said that was an orthodox burial. So we just patched everything back up and just, you know, make sure that we didn't desecrate any graves. But yeah, that's my hometown legend. Hope you guys enjoyed. Thanks for the podcast. Bye. Thank you, caller. Another weird thing about me is that I grew up with a metal detector in my hands. I have boxes upon boxes of silver, copper, and a few gold coins that i found over the years. I tell you that to share this quick story. I got into metal detectors from my uncles and my dad. You see, they've been into the hobby since the mid-70s. Well, you see, back in those days, there weren't strict rules about where you could detect, and my dad found himself near a Civil War battlefield somewhere in rural Tennessee. What he and his group were doing would probably land him in prison today. But back then, they were well within the law. They spent the day digging mini balls, bullets, mostly drops, so they still had that bullet shape. A few in the group even found broken bayonets, and one guy even found a belt buckle. Then one man in the group dug a hole and found a uniform button three inches away Another, then again, three inches, and another. Finally, portions of bone began to appear in the small hole at his knees. Unbeknownst to him, he'd uncovered a long-forgotten soldier that had apparently been buried on site in a shallow grave. Of course, the law then got involved. According to my dad, a museum came and took the skeleton away. Now I love a good treasure story. And this one certainly didn't disappoint. So thank you again, caller, for sharing your hometown legend. Well, we had another submission that was historic and I guess a bit war-related. So I thought maybe we should tune into that one as well. For more on that, the following is Jake's submission from the state of Utah. Hey, Derek, it's Jake again from Utah giving you a call. I'd like to put in a, the hometown legends one. I don't think many people have talked about this one. I have a few hometown legends, but I want to share this one. And a lot of people don't know about it unless you're uh, born and raised here in Utah. 
I mean, there's a few other people that have probably heard about it, historians, but this one's huge, and it only took the the LDS religion or the Mor- the Mormon religion about a hundred years to recognize it as their fault, and it's called the Mountain Meadows Massacre, and so it's down in southern Utah. Just to kind of give you a brief tell of what the Mountain Mountain Meadows Massacre is all about, there was some settlers coming through the Utah Territory at the time, and there was around about about over 200 uh, settlers making their way through Utah up through Oregon. Well, at the time, especially um, in Utah, for the Mormons to be pushed as far far west as they did, they uh, kind of had had some vendetta against that. And so when they settled, a bunch of settlers from the Mormon party went down to southern Utah and settled down there. Of course, as Western uh, history goes, sometimes uh, you can get away with some stuff and, and bury it. The settlers that moved down south, they decided to uh, harass some of the settlers that were going through. Well, they disguised themselves as Paiutes, or uh, a, a Native American tribe that lives down there. And uh, they decided to dress up as uh, Paiute Indians they decided to ransack the settlers. Well, a couple of the party members decided that uh, it, it would be, be be okay to kill some of these settlers. Well, as the word started spreading back that some of these settlers were escaping and letting them know that it was uh, white men and not Indians, that's when the word got, got back up to, to Salt Lake. Whoever made the, we don't know if it was Porter Rockwell or uh, if it was Brigham Young, the president of the Mormon Mormon church at the time, Porter Rockwell is uh, Joseph Smith's bodyguard, as well as Brigham Young's bodyguard. Whoever made the call decided they were going to wipe out this entire settler party. They killed over uh, 120 members of that party, leaving only uh, seven to eight-year-old children. But anyways, there's a monument down there in uh, Mountain Meadows, and it, it gives you the whole description of what happened during that time period and what happened with the massacre. But... I haven't had any experiences, but I've had several of my uh, good friends and family members that have gone down, and uh, uh, one of my cousins went down there, and she actually heard women screaming and crying as they were leaving. Then uh, one of my friends went down there to go see some relatives, and they went past the monument, and it was dusk across the field from the monument. The best way my friend can describe it is it almost looked like uh, um, flashes from guns, flash of a barrel. I thought you'd be interested in that one, Derek. I love your podcast. Keep up the good work. Hope you get to use the Mountain Meadows Massacre in your uh, hometown legends this time. Talk to you later. Thank you, Jake. Some of the reports you mentioned remind me of some of the stories I've heard come out of Gettysburg, especially the description of muzzle flashes. I found that particularly interesting. Now, one of the best parts about these Hometown legend specials is that I get to hear and learn about stories that I otherwise would never hear about. And Jake's story is likely to be one of those, lost to another time in another region. So thank you, Jake, for taking the time to share your legend. Now, it wouldn't be a Hometown Legends episode without a submission from our favorite stranger in Alabama. This is TJ's submission. Hi Derek, it's TJ from Salem, Alabama again. I'm sure you're getting sick of my voice by now. And this can also be used as a hometown legend. As I've said, I'm from Salem, Alabama. Salem, Alabama has 
Salem Shotwell Bridge, which is a covered bridge that now sits in what we know as the Monkey Park in Opelika, Alabama. The legend of the bridge is similar to many other legends of the bridge, just like a crybaby bridge. Supposedly, you can leave candy in the bridge and see children, the ghost of little children, come and take it. Apparently, the legend was that old school bus had fallen off of the bridge into the river below. Um, there again, the bridge has been moved to a little park in Opelika, Alabama now, and you can clearly see pictures of it. Hopefully you can use this somewhere. Love the podcast, and I'll be in touch with you with a few more stories. Thank you. Thank you, TJ. More bus stories. I wonder why that's such a common trope among these urban legends. It might be as simple as the fact that many of these are invented or at least perpetrated by children. And of course, a school bus is a staple in most kids' lives. At least it certainly was when I was a kid. I used to ride at least three hours a day. Then again, like in theaters, perhaps the energy released in something like a bus crash somehow has the ability to linger on, well after the tragedy has been forgotten. So thank you again, TJ, as usual. Now our next entry is going to be a little different. Just stick with me on this one. Now the call you're about to hear is one you've probably heard before. It last aired on Season 7, Episode 20, Hometown Legends Part 1. This is a call by Kelly in the state of Alabama. Hi Derek, uh, this is Kelly. I'm calling for the Hometown Legends segment that's coming up. I grew up in Alabama and I went to college in um, Montevallo, Alabama. The only public liberal arts school in the state is there. Um, not a lot of people have heard about it. It's the University of Montevallo. And um, it used to be an old plantation, and there are a lot of like haunting, haunted stories associated with uh, the campus. So I was there, and I stayed in one of the dorms for one of the years that I was there. And I was in the building called Maine, which is a girl's dorm. And the top floor, there were like only four rooms at the very top of the building. And there was this story that a girl had like a Bunsen burner type cook stove in her room, which was against the rules. And she caught fire and like beat herself, like ran repeatedly into the door while she was on fire. And supposedly the image of her face burned into the door. And every time they replaced the door, the image of her face, like her burnt screaming face, like shows up on the door. So they actually, they keep the room totally locked up. And on, of course, on Halloween, they like, they go up there and they unlock it and they let people go up there and look at it. I never really experienced anything there. It was an old building and kind of creepy sometimes, but... I mean, just kind of like old, creepy old building vibes. And the other things that they reported on campus, there was the King House. I think it was the King House or maybe King Hall. But there was an old home uh, that was sort of in the middle of one of the quads. And I don't know that it was used for anything, but I heard it was haunted and I would obsessively watch like the curtains to see if the curtains had moved as I went walking across the quad to get to different classes. 
I never saw anything with that house, but, uh, you know, supposedly it's haunted. There's also supposed to be a bunch of tunnels used for, like, servants and slaves and stuff from back in the day, crisscrossing the quad. But I don't really know about that. So, anyway, I hope you can use it. Thanks. Bye. Well, after that call aired, I received the following message from Bethany, also in the state of Alabama. Hey, Derek. I'm currently listening to your Hometown Legends episode, and I live not terribly far from Montevallo University, where the Burning Girl story took place. You said something about liking the story, but hoping it isn't true. It is. Her name was Condi Cunningham. If you're interested in reading what happened and seeing a picture of the door where her face is said to have appeared, I'm linking to a couple of articles. Hopefully you haven't already been blown up with emails like this. If you have, just disregard this one. Thanks for what you do, Bethany. So naturally, Bethany's story got me thinking. What really happened that night in Alabama? Well, I know the real story. Some people think they know the whole story, but I know the real stories. And the biggest story that we have, uh, the biggest and most famous ghost, I should say, is Condi Cunningham, was burned in a fire in Maine Dorm in 1908. She was 16 years old, and she had a roommate, and we're not really sure what room she actually was in in Maine Dorm. At the time, there was only one wing, the um, west wing was, or the east wing. I forget which wing, but there was just one wing built at the time in 1908. Of course, it was all girls, and they had a matron that lived in the dorm with them, an older woman, and it was um, her job to ring a bell and make sure the girls were going to bed on time. So at 9.30, they would get a warning to stop what they were doing and get ready to go to sleep. At 10 o'clock, the lights went out. And so Condi and her roommate were cooking um, fudge, like chocolate, on a chafing dish with an alcohol burner that was like a Bunsen burner, and alcohol was the flame, and um, they neglected, either they didn't hear or they didn't pay attention to the 9.30 bell. So when it got close to 10 o'clock and the bell rang, they were they knew they were going to be in trouble. The girls used to get demerits and things like that, and they would get in trouble for things like that. So they hurried up and were trying to put everything away, and in their haste to put everything away, they knocked over the alcohol that was the fuel and it was still burning. And so the alcohol fell, you know, kind of spilled, and it went up the back of Condi's nightgown. She was wearing a flannel nightgown. And instead of, like nowadays, we tell our kids to drop, stop, and roll, but instead she went, she ran, and she ran down the hall screaming and the whole gown was engulfed in flames. They did manage to throw what they called a rug. I'm sure it was more of a blanket on her, but she did pass away. Her father was a, a judge up in Birmingham, and um, we have a copy of her obituary and everything else. So it was very sad, very sad. So that's the true story. That clip was taken from some footage shot on The Haunting. It was posted by Gamon Ron on YouTube. So apparently, at least this hometown legend is real. And if this one can be true, what about all the others? Thank you again to both Kelly and Bethany for sharing that information. Our next story is a bit violent in nature. So if you have kids listening, be warned. The following was submitted by an unknown listener in the state of California. 
Hi there, Derek. So this is going to be for the Hometown Legend segment. So this is not a story that I remember directly because it happened the year that I was born in my hometown, which is a small town about an hour north of Sacramento. And it's not uh, paranormal or cryptid related necessarily, but it is sort of, I guess, a, a dark sort of story from my hometown, if you would. Being that it's a small town, you don't necessarily expect there to be a lot of negative things or bad things. I always grew up there thinking that it was a very quiet, peaceful, happy community where everyone uh, knows your name and everyone gets along. But in July of 1997, there was a kid named Nathan who went to the local high school and he was always known as a problem child. My grandmother actually had babysitted him and my uncles knew him as a child and always thought that he was very strange. He was always very aggressive and uh, bullied younger children. And in high school, it turned out that that aggression was much more than everyone had thought. He uh, convinced another member uh, of the high school to recruit one of his friends, who I uh, won't name because people in the town, their family still live there, and I don't want to talk about them too much. But basically, Eric and one other person convinced this other uh, young man to get into the car with them and go down to the Sacramento River, where they proceeded to uh, beat him with a baseball bat unconscious and then stab him repeatedly until he was dead. They finally dumped his body in a nearby field, and this person is now serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. So it's a pretty disturbing story that comes from small town USA, where you think everything is fine. But every town, even small towns where everyone is friendly and nice to you, holds a very dark secret. It's a pretty well-known case in our little town. So... I just wanted to share that with you, and uh, I hope you uh, have a good day. All right. Bye. Thank you, caller. Now, I know I've said this before, but I have very little interest in true crime. Monsters, aliens, ghosts, those things pale in comparison to the fear-provoking power of the human monster. People are scary. I certainly don't need help imagining that. But thank you, caller, for sharing your town's legend even if it was terrifying and depressing. And here we are, two calls left, circling the bottom of the bucket, waiting to be plucked out and hurtled through the wires. The first to do so is a familiar story from a familiar state. This is Michael's call from the Lone Star State of Texas. Hey there, Derek. My name is Michael. I am calling with a local legend. I'm from the town in Denton, Texas, just a couple miles north of Dallas. This local legend is about a, a bridge. This bridge is called the Goatman's Bridge. Denton was founded right next to a small town called Alton. In between the two towns ran Hickory Creek. And over that creek rests a bridge it's an old red rusty bridge with with a sinister legend and current background to it it's said that in the 
early 1900s, there, there was a goat farmer. This, this goat farmer was African-American. And his success and his freedom was, was not enjoyed. It was not pleasuring to some of the locals. It was a group of clansmen who came and took him, murdered his family, and hung him from that bridge. And it said that once he was hung from the bridge and they looked down to, to see him, his body was gone. And to this day, if you drive over the bridge and turn off your lights, it is said that he would come and be seen on the bridge. Unfortunately, you can no longer drive on the bridge. But it is a super paranormal hotspot. The bridge has now had specials on television by ghost adventures and ghost hunters. It's been on the Travel Channel and Discovery Channel. It, it is a place full of controversy. There are rituals, Satanistic rituals, performed on the bridge, under the bridge, in the woods surrounding Hickory Creek. It is a massive paranormal hotspot. It is a place where you feel disgusted and scared every moment you're there. It's a place that, that I don't want to mess with. And those around me don't want to mess with either. Currently, they have stopped selling black cats in the area in which I live because of all the bodies found at Old Alton Bridge, Goatman's Bridge. It's a pretty scary place. Yet every weekend, we have paranormal tours. A bunch of tourists wanting to mess with its power. But I've had some scary close encounters in that woods. And I never want to deal with it again. Anyways, thank you so much for taking my call. I'm a brand new listener on your podcast. And it is such amazing content. Thank you so much for all your hard work. Please keep pushing them out. They're amazing. Thank you. Blessings. Thank you, Michael. This is not the first nor the last Goatman story to be shared on this program. It seems like nearly every state has some sort of Goatman legend somewhere within its borders. And of course, there are the very infamous tragedies at the Public Trestle in Kentucky a story we discussed back on part two. But listeners might not realize this, but that wasn't a one-off occurrence. People die all the time on the Popelik Trestle. Teen girl who survived a deadly train accident last week and continues her recovery tonight as so many questions still remain about why she and her friend were on the tracks. 15-year-old Savannah Bright was killed when she was hit by a train on the Pope Lick Trestle on Sunday night. She's on the left. Her friend Kaylee on the right, who was 16, was also hit. She survived. She's being treated at University Hospital. Investigators have not released many details about what they believe happened to them that night. 
night. But that particular railroad trestle has been the scene of multiple fatalities and injuries over the years. Wave 3 News has been covering these cases since at least the 1980s. And our reporter, David Mattingly, has been looking back through our archives today, and you're seeing actually some similarities here. That's right. In almost all these cases, people ignored posted warning signs. They trespassed onto railroad property, and by the time they heard the train coming, it was too late. In 1993, a young woman is rescued by the Jefferson Town Fire Department after she escaped a passing train by clinging more than 80 feet high to the edge of the trestle near Pope Lick and Taylorsville Roads. J-Town Chief Sean Driesbach was the firefighter who pulled her to safety. It took every bit of ladder we had to get up there to reach her. Uh, and she's been hanging there, no telling how long she was actually hanging there before we got there. This case stands out because the woman survived. In 1994, a man was killed by a train after his ATV overturned on the trestle, trapping him on the tracks. In 2000, a 19-year-old fell to his death from the trestle after encountering a train. Why does this keep happening? You know, I don't know. I mean, I guess people are intrigued by you know, the, the thrill of going up there on the trestle. In 2016, an Ohio couple ignored the no trespassing signs and entered the trestle spurred by a fictitious story of a half man, half goat creature that's supposed to inhabit the bridge. That urban legend was made into a movie back in 1988. But the couple instead was trapped on the trestle in a real life horror story. A train killed the 26 year old woman her boyfriend survived by clinging to the edge of the track. After each of these tragedies, there is the public warning to observe the signs and stay away. Still, people ignore them routinely. And even though trains pass through multiple times a day, many visitors make the mistake of believing the tracks are abandoned. David Mattingly, Wave 3. That clip comes to us from WAVE, NBC News 3 out of Louisville. So some with an open mind might look at this and say, it's just the goat man's curse, while others will tout human error. But one thing remains absolutely certain. The bridge is dangerous. Stay off of it. Thank you again, Michael, for sharing that story. Oh, and if you want a deeper dive on the Alton Goatman Bridge, check out the notes on this post. I link to yet another BuzzFeed Unsolved video where the boys take on the infamous code man. Go check it out. I feel like I've been buried in hometown legends for weeks now. I'm so ready to move on to season 9. I'm opening with the much anticipated first responders episode. So be prepared for that. And if you have a first responder call, you have another day or so if you'd like to sneak that in. And I'll tell you guys what. If I get it done early, I'll toss it up here on Patreon so that you guys get first crack at it. Now before I play the final call of these Hometown Legend specials and the final call of Season 8, I need to thank you all one last time. Because if it weren't for you, the show wouldn't have survived. Certainly not at this capacity. So thank you guys. This Part 3 is for you. Whether you've donated a dollar or the max since day one. I'm talking to you, Teresa. I appreciate everything each of you have done to help me succeed. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you.
Now, you didn't donate to hear me ramble about Patreon. You came for the stories, and I saved us a great one for last. This story revolves around an infamous haunting in a very successful horror film. If you're a fan of the film The Conjuring, grab some popcorn, because this is Courtney's hometown legend from the state of Massachusetts. Hi, Derek. My name is Courtney. I live in Massachusetts right now with my husband and two kids. I am calling because I don't remember hearing this story. I found your podcast, I'd say, like three months ago, and I've already kind of binged the whole thing, but I don't remember hearing about something local to my mother's house. My mother lives in Mapleville, Rhode Island. There is a house in Harrisville, and I apologize if this has already been put on the podcast, but I am calling kind of for like a hometown haunt type of thing, hometown legend. So I didn't realize this until one day I drove past a house and it appeared really old. And I kind of like Googled the information one day and it slipped my mind until recently when I was driven by it again. And I was reminded to tell my husband like, oh yeah, hey, that's the house from the Conjuring franchise, the first one. So a lot of people who follow the Conjuring franchise know that the first home is in Rhode Island, the one with Bathsheba, and it is from Harrisville. It's actually a real haunting, and if you're from Rhode Island, you know about this, and it's actually like kind of like not as big of a deal, but it is. I've heard it from some local people, and I've brought it up to some of my mom's neighbors and stuff, and people know that it's there, but they stay away from it, because traditionally up until, I guess, a couple weeks ago, which is what's prompted me to call... It was repurchased by a couple from Maine. It was originally owned by this other couple. I forget their last name. They owned it for like 30 or 40 years from when the Perrin family moved out in the 1980s. And they did not like the fame that the movie brought the house. They got very frustrated, put up signs all over the place, bought cameras, didn't like when people would stop on the road and take pictures of the house, which the house is like... I wouldn't call it secluded, but there's trees and things bordering the house so you can somewhat see it. But it's not something that you can drive by and gawk at. You definitely have to stop and kind of peer in between the trees to see the house. And I drove by it one day, like I said, a long time ago. My mom first moved to Rhode Island. And I was younger in my early 20s, and I was like, wow, that house gives me the heebie-jeebies. So I looked it up, and I found out that it was this haunted house. Like, everybody knew about it in her area. And the original story, I guess, if you listen to Roger Perrin speak about the house, which was the gentleman who owned it from 1971 to 1980, and the movie is based on him and his family. The occurrences that actually happened in The Conjuring House were very different than what was depicted in the movie. Finding out about this after the franchise came out and having passed it before that and understanding like, oh yeah, that's that haunted house everybody talks about. Kind of, obviously when you watch that movie, it is very good. It's very scary. It's, you know, the most critically acclaimed horror franchise of this generation, I believe. And of course, Ed and Lorraine Warren in and of themselves are such interesting people to pick apart for paranormal lovers. So I decided to get the other side of the story because everybody knows Ed and Lorraine Warren, their recount at that house, everything like that. But um, Roger Perrin, the father, actually discusses the hauntings in a different way. And he 
he, if you listen to him speak, I heard it on another podcast. I'm not sure the name of it. I don't remember, but I heard an interview and he said that he was watching the movie in 10 minutes and he started to get really angry because it was so completely wrongly depicted just from the beginning that he was just really angry about it. And he talks about a female. There were several spirits, but the main one was a female spirit. And local legend is that it's based off of this woman whose name is Bathsheba. She was one of the first accused witches in that area of Rhode Island. When she was caring for an infant of a neighbor, the infant suddenly died. And this recount of the occurrences is obviously hearsay from so long ago, the early 1800s. So there's no record of this. There's no anything on paper about it, but there's a rumor, if you will, that there was a sewing needle stuffed in the base of the infant's skull and it caused instant death. And people say that she was a witch and it was a sacrifice to Satan for her and her practices or whatever. So that's the local legend surrounding that. And she was assumed a witch after that. And, you know, in the movie, she hangs herself from a tree but that is not how she died. She died when she was 73. And her cause of death on her autopsy report is turning stone. I'm not sure what that means, but I'd assume she just died of old age. That's a pretty healthy age to live at at that time. So she passed and the house was sold several times since then. So when Roger Perrin purchased it, they did get tormented in the beginning. You know, the kids would get scared. They would spook the children. It would spook him, doors would close, things would get thrown, pictures would get thrown off the walls, typical paranormal stuff. But then, and I'm not sure how it came to this, I don't know what he did, but he says that the spirits began to kind of care for the kids and he would know that the spirit was present because it would rub his back and it would very much treat him and his children very endearingly. But it was very torturous to his wife. His wife experienced all kinds of crazy things. And I guess when Ed and Lorraine Warren were invited to the house to do their seance, which he was heavily opposed against, that's when the types of things that would conclude possession, you know, contorted body, screaming, speaking in another language, his wife started to experience that. He said that he believed the spirit would torment his wife because she felt as though she was the woman of the house. She would rub his back. She would play with the kids after a certain point. So when she started to treat the kids better, started to treat him better, it really didn't go that way with the wife. And the wife speaks of a, I believe her name is Carolyn, cites in my online research an instance where she was sitting on the couch and she felt something pierce her skin and she started to bleed and it it felt like a sewing needle. And I don't know what happened in that house. There's no conclusions or anything that this was Bathsheba. I heard in that interview an instance with the husband. He came home one day. The wife had left with the children to go buy shoes for school. And he sat alone at the kitchen table eating and he saw the basement door open from where he was because you could see that. And he kind of saw a veil figure move up from downstairs. She just kind of lingered. And he's like, I was very impatient. I only gave it like 20 or 30 minutes. And she was slowly making her way over to the kitchen table. And this is a really cool experience. I don't know if it's possible to link a podcast in the show notes, but it's Haunted New England something or other. The logo is like yellow and black. I looked it up in between phone calls. 
but his interview is very interesting. And he, he, he got impatient and he yelled at the spirit, like, well, if you're not going to come over here, just go away. The door slammed and he didn't see anything for six months. And there is an old interview on YouTube that I looked up because I'm a research person, if you can't tell. And the old owner of the house prior to this couple purchasing it said that she experienced some things, but not many, and of the same like, but it wasn't the same relationship that Roger and Carolyn had with the spirit. And once the movie came out and people started walking to this woman's house, she hated talking about it. Um, She definitely did not react well to that. The house went up for sale. And that brings me to a very exciting component of this, which is the couple that purchased it is very into paranormal. They're very educated. The gentleman of the couple is a paranormal investigator. So he's actually going to fix the house up to be able to handle visitors. So I'd assume he's probably going to close off like living quarters. And then because it's a rather large house, it's on a large piece of property with a river in the back. It's a big piece of property. And he's going to probably close off some of it and make that living quarters and then have the other part of it be an exhibit. So he's going to allow people to come in and tour the house and allow paranormal investigators there. And he's done a little bit of his own. And he said he's gotten some really good material. And the parent daughter, there's a daughter from the parent family that experienced the most haunting. She was there in the video and she said that, you know, she's really, she feels good about them being there because they're super educated. So I think that's really cool that they're going to open it to the public because it's such a point of curiosity. Like once I would mention to people that the Conjuring house is close to my mom's house, like as far as friends or stuff, if they were in the car with me, they'd always want to go check it out, go see it. And you always hesitated when there were signs like warding you off the property and you know there was a point in time where this woman from what I've heard would come out and like yell at people and you know tell them to get off her property and she wouldn't like it so I'm kind of glad I didn't really have interest too much in it when she was very actively in that and the the movie came out in 2013 and for the couple years after that she really dealt with a lot of people on the land and unfortunately the graveyard in Harrisville where Bathsheba is buried has received a lot of vandalism. Her gravestone has been broken many times and it's, this whole entire thing is based off of legend. You know, there is no written proof of her even killing a baby, I believe. It's all hearsay. All we know is that the baby died on her property. We don't even know if she was she was there, if she was caring for it. And I just think that that's unfortunate that locals and, you know, gawkers alike kind of have gone and tormented her final resting place. And that's unfortunate, but it is a cool place to go and check out her gravestone, too. And it's actually kind of not far from the house at all. So it's kind of a really weird place. So if you're ever in Harrisville area or you live right over the line in Massachusetts in Webster or Douglas or that area for whatever reason, I highly recommend driving by. It's on a main stretch of road. I believe it's called Route 96 or something. It's Round Top Road or Round Top Hill Road or something like that. It's pretty much the only way to get into Massachusetts from this part of Rhode Island without traveling back through Rhode Island to go up another highway. So it's it's pretty neat. I never realized I drove by it every day until somebody had mentioned to me like, oh, that house is near your mom's house. And I was like, oh, and I looked it up and I kind of forgot about it. And then I looked it up again recently after I saw there was a, ma- a major news story on a local news channel about this gentleman purchasing the home. And once I saw that, I was like, okay, maybe I'll go check it out now. Because I'm, I'm big on respecting people's wishes. And that lady definitely did not like pictures being taken of her home. So once I saw that Inside Edition story, I kind of just stayed clear of it. It slipped my mind. So it's very interesting to check out. And I figured I would share that. I 
definitely enjoy the podcast. It's great. Thank you for sharing all these awesome stories. My husband and I like can't get enough of it. We listen to it together. Thanks for that. Have a good one. Thank you, Courtney. Very informative. Of course, Courtney mentions Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed died many years back in 2006, and Lorraine just under a year ago. Well, they're both staples in the paranormal universe, but as much as they're well-known and recognized, they've also been thoroughly questioned and accused. There are many people in the community that believe the Warrens fabricated much, if not all, of their claims. But despite the validity of their stories, there's little doubt that their work has inspired several amazing films. The Amityville Horror, Annabelle, The Conjuring, and The Haunting in Connecticut. So either frauds or forthright, at least some of the movies they helped produce were decent. Thank you again, Corny, for taking the time to share. And thank you for sticking around for the third and final installment of Hometown Legends. Monsters Among Us Beyond is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And that terrifying score you're hearing, well, that's co.ag. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for the support. Have a great night. Come on, you guys didn't think I'd leave you hanging, did you? It's a special episode, so of course, I'm going to have a written submission. Tonight's secret story comes to us from Jamie in the state of Ohio. My name is Jamie from Erlander, and I'm writing to tell you about a tragic event that happened near where I grew up in 1977. I grew up in a town maybe 10 minutes from downtown Cincinnati, Ohio, called Southgate, the club was once the sprawling, opulent showplace of the Midwest, known for some of the best entertainment between New York and Chicago. It had opened May 5, 1937, and over the years, personalities such as Jimmy Durante, Milton Berle, Carol Channing, Lena Horne, and Sid Caesar performed on its stage. On May 28, 1977, at about 8.30 p.m., a fire broke out in the Zebra Room due to faulty wiring. Within minutes, the fire spread to the farthest room from the zebra room. With no audible fire alarm, word of mouth or the smell of fire was what alarmed patrons that they needed to evacuate. A little after nine, the fire took out the electric, and it became more difficult for people to escape, and panic took hold, and people began pushing and blocking exits. The building's confusing layout led to people coming to dead ends. 
By the end of that night, the building would collapse, and the scent of that tragic event could be detected for miles. All in all, 165 people died, and part of the building would burn for days because it was too hot for firefighters. Poor construction, no fire alarm, no sprinkler system, and some of the material used to decorate the walls were highly flammable. No firewall and overcrowding. That room had the most casualties and had 300 people over the legal limit for a room that size. To this day, nothing has been built in that spot. I love your show. Hopefully, this isn't too dark. Jamie. Thank you, Jamie, for sharing that story. And when Jamie began, I thought that this was going to be about a completely different tragedy in the city of Cincinnati. A few short years later, in 1979, The Who came to town, and a tragedy followed. The following clip comes courtesy of CBS News. And now, a rock concert in the news. Thousands of young people had gathered hours early to get into Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, Ohio. The attraction was the British rock band, The Who. Suddenly, one pair of doors to the Coliseum was broken open, and the waiting throng rushed inside, eager to get the best possible seats. In the stampede, 11 people were killed, eight others seriously injured. Rock music fans everywhere were shocked. Observers blamed the tragedy on several factors. Most of the seats, 80%, were general admission. That meant the first fans into the Coliseum would get the best places, and that encouraged the rush. Also, many of the kids had been waiting hours to get in. Some had been drinking or using drugs. The concert went on as planned, but the members of the Who were badly shaken. If it happened inside the hall, I don't think I would ever play again. There is a kind of a football game, boxing match feeling to a rock concert, and it's what guys seem to get off on. You know, they like, uh, they like this high-energy sort of event. The Who asked authorities to help make future rock concerts safe. And later this week, their concert in Buffalo, New York, was. Unlike Cincinnati, all Buffalo seats were reserved. I'm Christopher Glenn with a rock tragedy in the news. Absolutely terrifying. Thank you again, Jamie, for taking the time to share your story. And thank you for sticking around to the end of the program. Have a good night.